Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present David Yagubian, professor of history at California State University, who takes a critical look at President Biden's recent trip to the Middle East, which was long on controversy and short on accomplishments. Frederick Clarkson, senior research analyst with Political Research Associates, who discusses how U.S. Christian extremist groups are embracing political violence as they pursue an agenda that threatens democracy. And Nadia Marine Molina of the National Day Labor Organizing Network, who talks about the announcement of new Labor Department protections for exploited and threatened immigrant workers. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. An investigation by the Intercept news site reports that the Pentagon is using local armed groups in the Middle East and Asia to fight proxy wars on behalf of the U.S. The use of what is known as Secret 127E Covert Authority has been documented in multiple African nations, including a partnership with a notoriously abusive unit of the Cameroonian military that continued long after its members were connected to mass atrocities. In the Sinai, the Pentagon funded an Egyptian military unit involved in human rights abuses including torture, forced disappearances, and extrajudicial killings. The use of local intelligence units and stealth fighters by the Pentagon has expanded to Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria. A version of the program is also active in Iraq. Use of the secret 127E operations was confirmed by retired four-star Army General Joseph Votel who was the former head of U.S. Central Command and, before that, Special Operations Command. The 2018 National Defense Authorization Act gave the Pentagon authority to support foreign fighters, irregular forces, or individuals involved in irregular warfare. Critics of the 127E program warned that in addition to the risk of unanticipated military escalation and the potential costs of engaging in up to a dozen conflicts around the world, some operations may be unconstitutional because key members of Congress have no input and little information about where and how these programs are run. During Uber's global expansion, the ride-sharing company hired a pro-Kremlin lobbyist to operate in Moscow as part of a broad effort to curry favor with pro-Putin billionaire oligarchs. However, the drive quickly collapsed as the attempt to change the taxi law in Moscow failed, and Uber pulled its investment out of Russia. But according to The Guardian, the affair illustrated how, under Uber co-founder Travis Kalanick, company used highly paid lobbyists and political fixers to gain access to new markets. The lobbying campaign was revealed in the Uber files, which were comprised of over 124,000 internal company documents. Former top Uber executive Mark McGann, who oversaw the expansion into Europe, Asia, and the Middle East from 2014 to 2016, leaked these documents to the Guardian newspaper. 
McGann told The Guardian about how Uber broke U.S. law, duped police and regulators, exploited violence against drivers, and secretly lobbied governments across the world. Uber's hiring of Vladimir Senin, an influential lobbyist at the time and now a member of Russia's Duma or legislature, may be the most damaging to Uber. Senin's arrangement with Uber set off alarm bells for U.S. prosecutors concerned that the company may have violated U.S. bribery laws. Senin was hired for $650,000 to change the taxi laws in Moscow to favor the rideshare company, but in the end, his lobbying attempts failed. The chief executive of the Washington State Retirement Fund, Allison Tucker, is being criticized for her promotion of the Nonprofit Opportunity Works Initiative, backed by top private equity firms. Since the 1980s, the pension fund has invested $12 billion in a top private equity company, Kohlberg, Kravis & Roberts, or KKR, which proposes to help companies distribute equity shares to employees. The United Food and Commercial Workers Union condemned Tucker last month for her inherent conflict of interest in investing in KKR and endorsing the private equity program promoting employee ownership. The American Prospect reports that the union is particularly critical of KKR for its Asian fund that invested in digital face recognition technology in cooperation with China's security services. Critics say the Ownership Works Initiative misuses the term employee ownership since there are no long-term plans for employee control. The Food and Commercial Workers Union urged the pension fund to reject future investments in KKR because the union doesn't believe a fund manager can invest in a company that collaborated with an arm of the Chinese surveillance state in one fund and at the same time promised to invest in companies that won't have negative social impact. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. President Biden just returned from his first trip to the Middle East, where he visited Israel, Palestine, Saudi Arabia, and attended the summit meeting of the Gulf Cooperation Council that included his Saudi hosts and leaders from Egypt, Iraq, and Jordan. While in Israel, Biden reaffirmed U.S. commitments to Israeli security and spoke of his hope for a diplomatic breakthrough with Iran in reviving the international nuclear deal with Tehran that Donald Trump unilaterally abandoned in 2018. When Biden met with Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas, he pledged $100 million in additional aid to hospitals that serve Palestinians in Jerusalem, but made no public criticisms of Israeli settlements that violate international law and failed to call for accountability for the murder of Palestinian-American Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akhla. While meeting with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, Biden offered a fist bump, a gesture roundly condemned, as it stood in stark contrast to candidate Biden's pledge to make the Saudi leader a pariah for his presumed authorization of the assassination of U.S.-based journalist Jamal Khashoggi and other gross human rights violations. Biden also failed to make any progress 
ending U.S. collaboration with the Saudi-led war in Yemen that has killed more than 370,000 people. Your reporter spoke with David Yagubian, professor of history at California State University, who takes a critical look at Biden's recent Middle East trip, which was long on controversy and short on accomplishments. In terms of Biden in Israel and the West Bank, uh, unfortunately, his statements on the ground, his interactions with uh, Mahmoud Abbas, uh, as well as with Yair Lapid, the caretaker prime minister, essentially uh, repeat the pattern uh, that Democratic administrations uh, have engaged in uh, over the years, which is essentially to pay uh, lip service to the concept of a two-state solution and to offer platitudes regarding the importance of, uh, you know, a, a sovereign and viable Palestinian state, as Biden did uh, in his speech with Mahmoud Abbas in Bethlehem. Uh, but unfortunately, there there is really no difference when it comes to the most important issue, which is bringing an end to the Israeli occupation of Palestinian territories and either uh, producing a two-state or a one-state solution. The Biden administration uh, simply did not uh, offer anything uh, specific in this regard on on this trip. And, And in fact, unfortunately, whereas the Biden administration does seem to be more willing to support some Palestinian institutions to uh, fund the United Nations uh, Relief Works Agency, which provides humanitarian aid. And of course, uh, you know, th- this is is still better than uh, the complete snub that Palestinians received from the Trump administration. But it could be argued that uh, these moves simply just prolong the suffering and prolong the pain because supporting, as Biden has pledged to the UNRWA with $200 million, providing $100 million of aid to support the East Jerusalem area Palestinian hospital network. You know, I I don't want to say that that this isn't still positive and, and, you know, better than what we saw under the Trump administration. But but nevertheless, again, this this does nothing to advance the uh, prospects for peace between Israelis and Palestinians and uh, really just prolongs the agony in the conflict. Professor Yagobian, I did want to ask you about Biden's trip to Saudi Arabia. In many people's view, he betrayed his campaign promise to shun Mohammed bin Salman, the leader of Saudi Arabia, for his gross human rights abuses, as well as the murder of U.S. columnist Jamal Khashoggi. Do we know of anything that Biden got in return for, you know, what many people think was his public humiliation and going back on his promises? In terms of uh, a specific takeaway that Biden received from his his visit to Saudi Arabia, there does not seem to be uh, anything concrete that was agreed to. Uh, Most observers uh, considered the trip to basically be revolving around Biden's interest in trying to motivate the Saudis to produce more oil to lower uh, uh, increasing oil prices, um, but the Saudis made uh, no such promise or agreement. And uh, as far as I can tell, uh, no one is reporting uh, so far that there was a, a specific, explicit conversation um, in this regard. Biden also, as part of his agenda that, that sort of bridges the, the Israel visit as well as the, the visit to Jeddah and Saudi Arabia, is also uh, interested in advancing the so-called normalization process between Gulf Arab nations uh, and Israel, and in that context, uh, creating an anti-Iran defensive alliance, uh, specifically including 
Israeli technology, American bases, and a an interlocking series of aerial defenses uh, that Gulf Arab member states, those that join in uh, ostensibly with the Abraham Accords, would be able to take advantage of. So, so th- uh, this was something that uh, Biden was pushing as much as he could to, to try to warn uh, the GCC plus three uh, that he spoke to in Jeddah against forging strong ties economic military with China. Um, but again, uh, we'll have to see what the uh, decisions are going forward uh, by GCC plus three members in relation to this ask by Biden. Because, for example, Saudi Arabia had uh, stated its interest in supplying China uh, with oil in exchange for yuan, not dollars. Um, this is something, even though it wasn't covered heavily in American mainstream media, uh, is, is critically important to uh, the viability of the, the dollar um, and its, its global reserve currency status. Th- therefore, um, this is something certainly that was one of Biden's asks, um, yet it remains to be seen uh, whether or not uh, the Saudis will respond positively to this request. That was David Yagubian professor of history at California State University San Bernardino, and author of Struggle and Survival in the Modern Middle East. Find more analysis and commentary on Biden's recent Middle East trip by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Under Donald Trump's presidency, the nation's Christian right movement prospered, with important rulings in the U.S. Supreme Court made possible by Trump's nomination of three extreme-right justices that cemented in place the current conservative supermajority. Recent high court rulings, including the overturning of the 50-year-old Roe v. Wade decision that provided federal protection for women's access to abortion, as well as the Kennedy v. Bremerton School District case that further eroded the separation of church and state, shocked and angered a majority of Americans. The Trump-provoked violent January 6th attack on the Capitol appears to have galvanized many Republican legislators, religious extremists, and armed white supremacist terrorist groups to embrace political violence as a tactic to take power and overturn election results that don't favor Republican candidates. At the state level, this alliance of Republicans and religious nationalist groups have passed legislation that outlaws abortion even in the case of rape or incest, targets LGBTQ and trans youth, bans books, and the teaching of U.S. history of slavery and racism in public schools. Your reporter spoke with Frederick Clarkson, senior research analyst with Political Research Associates and author of Eternal Hostility, The Struggle Between Theocracy and Democracy. Here he discusses how U.S. Christian extremist groups are embracing political violence as they pursue an agenda that threatens democracy. After the failed coup in January 6th, uh, some months later, there was an effort to begin to, uh, to rally the kind of constituencies that came to Washington on January 6th. And they are concerned about a range of things. I mean, some people are concerned about vaccinations and masks. Uh, others are uh, concerned about election integrity, as they call it. But also people were concerned about uh, their particular vision of uh, how to create a more theocratic society. Many of them are driven by conspiracist visions of uh, demonic spirits controlling society and how to drive them off. Now, the Christian right has done very well politically over the last few decades, but one of the things they learned is that 
they can't do it by themselves, or at least they can't do enough by themselves. So they're involved with some of the kinds of people we see on January 6th now. And at the Reawaken Tour, uh, led by Michael Flynn and uh, populated by headliners like Eric Trump and Mike Lindell, the pillow guy, and, and election denier kinds of people, but also people who are important in the conservative Christian world, who most people have never heard of, like a man named Lance Wall now, who's a prophet in, in this world. He's also a smart political strategist. He's the guy who came up with a biblical justification for Donald Trump, who one would think would never have passed muster with, uh, with uh, conservative Christians being the kind of man that he was. So we are seeing this fusion of conspiracist thinking, the, the QAnon people, the anti-vax people, the theocrats rallying themselves, thousands of people at a time, uh, 15 big rallies in big cities around the country. Most recent one was in Virginia Beach. So it's kind of a rolling revolt in organizing and a, and a cohering of this uh, far-right ideology that's uh, ultimately anti-democratic. You know, I did want to ask you about Pastor Greg Locke. I think he got a lot of publicity recently when a clip of his just unhinged rant, I don't think you could call it a sermon, where he was attacking Democrats as godless communists who uh, don't deserve to live in essence and uh, warning about the next insurrection, really threatening violence uh, from the pulpit. I don't know if he's typical of a lot of these folks in the extreme right and the religious movement in this country, but tell us a little bit about Greg Locke and his vision as compared to others in this same movement. Well, I, I think his vision is, uh, is similar. I think he's uh, uh, much more of a fire-breathing provocateur than even even some of the others, uh, offering the most militant, vile, and divisive, provocative language that he can think of. That's that's what Greg Locke is like. He, his church in Tennessee is actually uh, a tent. You know, he's like he's brought the old-time tent revival style to militant contemporary theocratic politics. And he'd be somebody who wouldn't take that seriously, except that he's been on the Reawaken tour with Michael Flynn. So he's given that stage and allowed to put out those kinds of messages. He's also uh, become notorious for organizing uh, a big bonfire of Harry Potter books, which he sees as demonic witchcraft. How far he's willing to go in terms of uh, uh, encouraging directly violence, I don't know. But he's not alone in creating a vision in which violence is justified to carry out their their aims. And we've always seen these people. We've seen them over many years, over many decades. But there are more of them than there used to be, and they're better organized, and they're being given platforms and alliances by the likes of Michael Flynn. Mm. Fred, we don't have a lot of time left, but briefly tell us about uh, Republican candidate Doug Mastriano, who won his party's nomination for Pennsylvania governor, in, in this November's general election, he'll be going up against Democratic uh, candidate Josh Shapiro, the state's uh, incumbent attorney general. What would you want our listeners to uh, first and foremost know about Doug Mastriano? Uh, Doug Mastriano is the Christian right's dream candidate. Right? He, he's in and of their world. I looked at the groups uh, that are supporting him, some of the individuals, and they're the very kinds of people I've been talking about through all of this, people who believe in taking the seven mountains of society. They like him, not just because he agrees with them in these things, but also because he's a retired Army uh, strategist and intelligence officer. 
And he brings the skills and the sensibility of leading armies, right, to the work of the state legislature and to the work of politics. Republican and Democratic campaign operatives can't figure out why he's competitive uh, with a, a well-established candidate like Josh Shapiro, or the Democrat in, in the governor's race. But he is running a campaign in his own way, mobilizing uh, the kinds of hidden forces that I'm talking about here, because uh, most people don't participate in the in election processes, even in a good year. Uh, but he knows that he can turn out his people and be competitive. His vow to overturn an election result he doesn't like as governor. It's uh, frightening stuff. Well, it is indeed. But also keep in mind that the world of Army intelligence is a small world. Mm-hmm. That's where Michael uh, Flynn came out of. And uh, there is a, a number of senior, you know, retired Army intelligence officers who are working a scene uh, nationally. And it's not just Doug Mastriano and not just Michael Flynn. That was Frederick Clarkson senior research analyst with Political Research Associates, and author of Eternal Hostility, The Struggle Between Theocracy and Democracy. Find more analysis and commentary on Christian nationalism's threat to democracy and links to Clarkson's recent articles by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Undocumented immigrants have filled the roles of essential workers before and since the coronavirus pandemic, yet many are at the mercy of unscrupulous employers who steal their wages, force them to work in unsafe conditions, and sexually harass and assault them. These workers often don't speak out for fear of being deported. In early July, the U.S. Department of Labor issued a document outlining a process to provide immigrant workers some protection, although advocates say much more needs to be done. In support of the Labor Department action, the National AFL-CIO Union Federation said, when immigrant workers are scared into silence, violations go unchecked. We cannot reasonably expect to end wage theft and exploitation without protecting these workers who have the courage to take a stand. Between the Lines Melinda Tuhu spoke with Nadia Maureen Molina, co-executive director of the National Day Laborer Organizing Network, or NDLON, comprised of 66 worker centers in 23 states. Here she describes how grassroots activism helped bring about this Labor Department Immigrant Workers Initiative, which she calls a big deal. It is a big deal because it recognizes uh, for the first time how uh, immigration status and and immigration as as an agency, right, is used by employers against workers who are attempting to enforce their rights. Can you give just some, you don't need names, but some specific examples of how immigrant workers have had their rights denied and been abused by employers and, and have not had recourse before? It's, it's hard because there are so many examples and really, um, there, it's, it's really, a, a, among employers, there's a sort of culture of abuse and exploitation um, against 
immigrant workers. And for workers, it's so common that it's just sometimes that's the way it is. But to give, you know, to give some, some concrete examples, I think it was uh, last year, there was a chemical leak in Georgia at a plant called Foundation Food Group, where six workers were killed. And one of the organizations on the ground there in Georgia, which is called GAFU, Georgia Familias Unidas, they talk about how uh, the fact that workers were undocumented in that plant, um, the fact that um, the sheriffs in that area have, a, have an agreement to co-enforce basically uh, immigration with ICE meant that workers in that plant were afraid of, um, even though there was uh, this terrible leak, even though workers had been killed, people were afraid of what would happen when, when the emergency services came, um, were afraid that they could be deported. And this really uh, was an obstacle for OSHA to be able to do its job of investigating why the leak had happened and whether workers had, you know, had been adequately protected by the company, which they hadn't, right? And so um, this, uh, this group of workers were, you know, willing to stand up and talk with OSHA because um, there was an assurance after um, some advocacy, there was an assurance that their immigration status wouldn't be used against them. You know, this is something that happens every day where workers have their wages stolen, where workers are facing hazardous health and safety conditions or are being discriminated against or being sexually harassed on the job and feel that they can't speak up or that if they do speak up, uh, they want to speak up, but if they do, you know, that their employer is going to call immigration, um, is going to call ICE and that ICE is going to, uh, you know, come and, and arrest them and their families. The idea of the directive is that workers who file a case, let's say with uh, OSHA, which is the Occupational Health and Safety Administration, that they would be able to make an application for the Department of Labor to support them so that they could get immigration protection, right? Eventually, what we believe is that when other workers see that they're able to access this protection, that's going to encourage workers to come forward. The announcement to us was a partial step forward towards what needs to be done because the Department of Labor, you know, they, they put out this information just kind of on their website, right? Um, and in a frequently asked questions document. What really needs to happen is that every worker in the country needs to know that this exists. Um, every worker needs to know how they can apply if they need to. And then the other part that's still missing is DHS, um, the Department of Homeland Security, also needs to come forward and make clear how workers can apply for this status. So there's still, you know, more that we need to see um, for this to become real for workers across the country. That was Nadia Marine Molina, co-executive director of the National Day Laborer Organizing Network. Learn more about new Labor Department immigrant worker protections and the network by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis 
of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WREK in Atlanta, Georgia, WZMO in Marion, Ohio, KMWV in Salem, Oregon, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. Scott Harris.